Hello and welcome to Charity Chat. I'm your host Samuel Davies and in this show I'll be speaking to Giles Pegram, CBE, architect of the incredibly successful Full Stop campaign. Our regular listeners would have heard me speaking with Giles about his work with the Full Stop campaign a few months ago. So in this episode Giles and I thought to speak about how charities could and should begin their fundraising journeys or their fundraising genesis as I like to call it. Uh, We talk about how to be successful in developing fundraising approaches that are right for the charity, the role of volunteers, trustees and paid fundraisers in raising funds necessary for charities to meet the needs of their beneficiaries. This episode follows a conversation that I had a few weeks ago with Charity Chat listener Claire. Claire, I hope you find this useful and the rest of the audience, I hope you also do too. So without further ado, here are Giles and I speaking about fundraising genesis. Yeah, welcome to Charity Chat, and I'm here with a friend of the show, Giles Pegram, CBE. How are you doing, Giles? I'm very well indeed, thank you, Sam. Thanks again for coming on to the show. It's a pleasure. Really appreciate it. And today we're going to be talking about small charities, especially charities that have maybe just formed, how should they go about fundraising? What are the first things they should be thinking about? I think the first thing I need to say is, is a lot of your listeners might say, what on earth has Giles Pegram got the right to do? Uh, to tell small charities how to fundraise because uh, I've only worked in large charities. Sure. But there are two things I'd say. One is that uh, my experience of working uh, in large charities, like the NSPCC, is that you discover some principles that are universal. Mm. Um, and certainly since I've become a consultant and work with quite a number of small charities, I have actually discovered that the principles really do apply to small right, charities. Okay. But that a lot of charities just get it wrong. Right, right. And, and what, what kind of challenges are small charities facing when it comes to thinking about what kind of fundraising they should well, be starting well, down? I, I think, you know, where, where to start? Yeah. Um, and I read a blog once that was, was, was saying that received wisdom says that you start with trust and foundations. Right. Um, and that caused me a bit of concern because, um, I mean, first of all, trust and fundraising, uh, trust and foundations, has an expertise behind it that, that, that you have to know um, what the trusts are that you should be applying to yeah. that meet your you know, where you meet their criteria you need to find the right information internally mm-hmm. to be able to fill in the application and then there's a lot of expertise in actually filling the application itself sure and so for somebody with no experience of trust and fundraising uh, foundation to go into that it's almost like an offence to um, the professionals who apply themselves just to trusts and foundations. Sure. So sure. I, I do think the first question is, you know, where do I start? And I, I suppose going on that, that point about the trust and foundations, I know that you know I've, I've raised funds through trust myself, and I know as you say, it's, it can be very difficult, can't it, to get through to the decision makers. Often, in some cases with trust, you have the gatekeepers, and they'll be looking for any excuse. I think. Uh, I think it's fair to say to take you out of the running because there are so many applications that every trust will be seeing. There are one or two trusts that are very flexible uh, in their application procedures, but there are others um, that, you know, you, you have to fill in 30-page forms and you have to yeah. know exactly what the right words are to use, etc, etc. So they do, as you say, make it, make it difficult to apply. And then, even when you send in an application, a brilliant application, 
you might only have a one in five or one in ten chance of being successful. So yeah. you know, I'm, that's not for me the right place to start. No. So how can charities best understand the low-hanging fruit or the most appropriate and um, effective ways of, of fundraising for what, them? What do you mean by the low-hanging fruit? Do you mean the, the, the techniques that are likely to bring in the... Um, I think, I think so. I mean, I suppose there are two aspects, aren't there? There's the, there's the techniques based on the skills that they have, but then also, you know, small charities starting out, presumably they will have some community, some network of people that they know. So if, for example, they happen to have a member of, on their board who's a, a trustee of a trust, then maybe they you know, might, might be worth them thinking about applying to that trust. But equally, if they've got a load of people that are, you know, uh, younger, um, people that are inclined to do a tough mudder, and I would, I would think that that might be a starting point. Okay, in a way you're starting to answer your own question. The low-hanging fruit isn't the, the techniques that are going to work for any particular charity because they're the low-hanging fruit. I think what you've talked about is that you don't start with types of fundraising, you start with people. Right. Um, and so, in a sense, the two most important things I want to get through in this podcast uh, one is, um, as you uh, hinted at, the importance of the board of trustees. Yeah. Um, and the other thing is, is that I think the decision on where to start involves a process. It's not just you start there, you have to go through a process. And I'll talk a bit in a minute about the process, but can, can we just talk a bit, a bit about the board? Sure. I have a view that until the trustees have exhausted their wallets and exhausted their networks, and the network's wallets, yeah. how on earth have they got the right to ask anyone else uh, ah, to give? Okay. Now, that's yes. going to be very contentious to a lot of people, <laughs> but, uh, and, I, and I, I don't believe it quite literally. But I do think, for example, that if um, somebody is being interviewed for the, the first post, or the first fundraiser in a charity, yeah. one of the things I think um, they ought to ask the chief executive is, do I have access to the trustees? Sure. And I think if the chief executive says, no, 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 the, the trustees are there uh, for governance purposes, mm. uh, I've employed you to fundraise for the charity. Right. Now, I think if a CEO would say that, I'd, I'd politely get up and walk out of the door. Right. Because I think, in a sense, you have to have if you're fundraising. You, you can't just go out and fundraise. I don't like the word fundraise because yeah. it implies that you're going out and persuading people to give to the charity. Well, I actually think the job of a fundraiser is to inspire people to want to change the world by making a difference and giving to the cause right. and feeling great about it. Sure. So, as you suggested a moment ago, you should start with the people. So, I think a fundraiser starting in a new charity needs the full and active support of the trustees, the CEO, the services director, the yeah. SMT. Um, all the other key people. I don't think they should be simply told by the CEO, go out and fundraise. I think I've heard something from uh, an American colleague uh, in the charity sector over in America along those lines where I think the, the um, mantra in their organisation for trustees coming on board was... Oh, it's get, give or give out. It's yeah. something, yeah, give, get on or get off. Or something like yeah. that. So it's the idea give, of get, yeah, you, exactly. you either give yourself yep. donations, or you get, others you to get give, somebody or you get on, exactly, or you get off. Yeah, but that, so. that is the American way of looking at it, but it's not the way that um, the English trustees are set up to look at it. They, they, no. they do think they've come... Uh, and, and the expression I hear more, more often than not is, oh, we give our time, not our money. Right. Well, you know, frankly, it's, it's, it's the money that's going to pay for the services. Yeah, so you yeah. give as much of your time as you want, but unless you're prepared to 
either get or give, yeah. um, it's the money we need. And, right. and I think trustees should be aware of that and fundraisers should have access to trustees mm. to see what their networks are. to me that there are some small charities starting out they have some advantages in a way potentially because the people they're talking to if they can convey it in the right way it, it's authentic isn't it that they do need the money because they're brand new they won't have reserves presumably in a lot of cases they won't have infrastructure it'll be a few volunteers it's a really powerful case for support saying to somebody we really need your money this is the cause this is the need we're not getting we're not even getting paid you know we we need and presumably then depending on you know if they're investing in fundraising they're asking people to come on board and help them do that presumably a lot of the communications will be tailored and maybe even um won't be as mass marketed as, as a larger charities so there might be some benefits there i wonder for i think there are huge benefits but um I, i'm worried that your your listeners might think oh well he would say that wouldn't he but I, I think um, a couple of points you make are really good. What, the first is that if you're the NSPCC and you're trying to recruit new individual givers, yeah. every person that sees your DRTV ad or sees your ad in the paper will have seen it countless times before mm. and decided either to give, in which case they're on your donor base, or decided not to give. Mm. So you're actually trying to persuade these people at the margins to give who've never given before. Yeah. A new charity, it, it's got completely virgin territory. N they have no supporters, so they're going out. They must have an advantage yeah, um, yeah. because they, they don't have an existing body of support um, that, that they can acquire it. Mm. Uh, the second is that, you know, as appeals director of the NSPCC, having raised £185 million last year, I then have to raise £210 million sure. the next year. Sure. So there's a real danger that fundraising can become like a machine yeah and again the advantage of a small charity it is that you can create a much greater closeness for instance between the chief executive and a donor mm. for the NSPC it was incredibly hard with you know a million donors on the file to create a direct link to the chief executive but if you're tiny hospice you, know, you can invite all your donors in yeah. to the hospice and yeah. the chief executive can meet them and talk to them and engage with them absolutely so as I say, you know, they're going to, people say, well, he would say that, wouldn't he? But I do think, you know, that this complaint, oh, we're a small charity, you know, it's easy for the large charities, they've got reserves, etc. I do sometimes get a bit frustrated with that. I'm not going to pretend for a moment that there aren't enormous advantages in working for a large charity, large staff, the ability to innovate, etc., etc. Yeah. What I don't like is, is it when small charities say, like, as a matter of fact, mm. oh, it's all very well for you, big charities, you've got all the advantages and we don't. Because mm. I do want to say to them, you know, you've got the various things we've just talked about. Yeah. We're talking about small charities and going out and raising funds initially. But I suppose before that, anyone organising, setting up a charity, needs to think about whether there are charities doing their work already. I've read a lot recently about uh, comments about the fact that there are too many charities and that charities need to be merging or collaborating more and so the idea of setting up a new charity I suppose it needs to be done you know with a level head doesn't it? It's a question I've always had a problem with um, this idea that charities should merge. There are an awful lot of charities that have 
um, a particular niche. Mm. So the NSPCC was solely dependent on donor income, not statutory income. So we didn't right. chase statutory contracts. Yeah. We were only about preventing cruelty to children. And we were the only charity that was solely concerned with preventing uh, cruelty to children in the UK. Mm. So there was no other charity for us to merge with because there was no other charity with the same objectives sure. as us. Sure. So now take it down to the level of a small charity. You, you don't set up a charity. What you do is you identify a need. And mm. I think I said a bit earlier, you know, a group of people, they identify a need. They want to do something about it. Now the assumption has got to be that the state isn't doing something about it that there's no other voluntary organisation doing something about it. And so there is a, a reason to set up a new charity to raise money to meet that particular need. And I don't think that a large number of charities per se is a bad thing. I think if charities have very similar objectives, then merging is, is, is something they should, should consider. But, you know, you almost said a moment ago that um, somebody setting up a new charity needs to think very carefully. Well, they need to think very carefully to make sure there isn't another charity doing you know, meeting their need. Yeah. But the chances yeah. are, if they've identified a need, um, they, will have, they will have found out, is anyone else meeting it? And if there was somebody else, they'd go with them. Absolutely. If they're setting up a new charity, it's because there isn't an organisation that's meeting the need that they've identified. A level of kind of competition, in some ways, can lead to innovations, can lead to charities up in their game and finding more efficient ways of behaving. We've spoken to lots of other charities and leaders who have, uh, Penny Appeal being one of them, it's a really successful new organisation that is, seems to be filling a, a gap and, um, and, and they've you know, come up with some really innovative fundraising ideas which other charities hadn't thought yep. of, you know, yep. who may be working in similar areas. I think one of the worst things that ever happened to charity fundraising was the Ice Bucket Challenge. Over oh, it. Do you remember the Ice Bucket yeah, Challenge? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you remember who it was for? I can't, I can't remember the name of it, no. no, no. no nobody would be able to. No. Or it's, it's a tiny house or something like that? I've no idea. Like that, I've yeah. no idea either. But I know the reason for it was because it was the it was the feeling of the Ice Bucket being tipped over you. That was the feeling that their beneficiaries felt, I think. Again, I'm, I'm a bit vague on the details. Yeah, but what, so. what happened was it was so successful that I think vast numbers of professional fundraisers sat in rooms thinking, what, what's our ice bucket challenge yeah. going to be? And I think that was a complete waste of time. You don't create an ice bucket challenge. The ice bucket challenge, it was a one-off. There'll be other one-offs. You know, Bob Geldof did a one-off for Live yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't. You don't try and repeat no. these one-off things. Try and, try and and be innovative and find the things that are right for you. But I think that speaks to your point because I think the, I think, I, I do know this, the Ice Bucket Challenge, the No Makeup Selfie, which is another one of these online campaigns, we raised a lot of money. Again, I can't remember which charity, maybe it was a multiple number of charities. These were both ideas that originally came from a supporter uh, doing it, and then the charity picked it up. So I think, again, maybe there's, a, there's another example of, you know, how charities can be, even small charities just set up, it's about looking what's going on what are you, and engaging with supporters and then encouraging them to go out and support you rather than maybe giving them a kind of this is what we want you to do you know sometimes there's a, a real you, benefit you, to you got me you got me thinking about something which I thought at first was only relevant to large charities but I think it is relevant to small charities the full stop appeal raised 274 million pounds no appeal before or since has raised more than 100 million pounds well. now 
for the public phase of the appeal, we recruited a team of professional fundraisers, probably eight or ten of them, to come up with fundraising ideas for the public. We also had our volunteer committees, yeah. and they would come up with fundraising ideas. The ideas that the volunteers came up with raised money. Really? Not one of the ideas that the paid staff came up with, wow. not one raised any money. Yeah. It was a complete waste of time. So staff-driven fundraising, the idea of staff sitting around thinking of an idea, yeah. uh, like an ice packet challenge, isn't the right thing. Get the volunteers, but back to your point much earlier, get the volunteers coming up with the ideas. They're, they're, one, they'll be more creative. Yeah. Um, two, they'll own the idea and want to make it work. Yeah. Whereas, you know, coming up with a wonderful idea in, in the comms department and then trying to sell it to the volunteers isn't going to work. Absolutely. So that would be my advice to a small charity as well, is, is the fundraiser shouldn't be coming up with the, the ideas. Try and, you know, build on the volunteer ethos you were talking about and get the volunteers to think, you know, okay, we need to raise money, um, how are we going to do it? Yeah. Um, and get them to come up with some crazy ideas, which you can guide them against, but eventually they'll come up with the ideas that, uh, that they own and that work. So let me come on to the, the process I was talking about. Sure. I mean, I mean the, the, the first thing about the process, if I were a new fundraiser in a charity, would be to understand the nature of the charity. So are they national? Are they local? Mm -hmm. Are they very local? What's the constituency of potential support? As you touched sure. on earlier, are they uh, a mass appeal or do they have niche appeal? Mm -hmm. um, are there obvious groups of people who would have a propensity uh, to support that cause? And then I think you go on to, well, if, it, if it's a relatively new charity, well, who are the founders? Um, and if they're the founders, presumably they were a group of people who identified a need yeah. and wanted to do something about it. So presumably they gave of their own money to do that. Mm -hmm. Are they still around? Uh, where have the current trustees come from? Who are they? Do they have wealth? Do they have networks and influence? And then, of course, who, who are the existing supporters of the charity and at what level? Are there other people close to the charity? Is there a president or patrons? Uh, are there celebrity support? A newspaper who supports maybe the local mayor? Yeah. And there'll be other things as well, you know, like, like reading through the last five years' annual reports and accounts. And I think that only when you've gone through that process, then you have the knowledge, understanding and insight, uh, and then you can think about where to start. Are there any devices that people can use with that process? So like kind of SWOT analysis or pestles or any of this stuff, do you think, or, or not? Is that not really that relevant? I, I think if, if somebody understands a SWOT analysis and, and really knows how, how to make it work, yeah. then that's great, of course. Yeah. Um, I, I love SWOT analysis. Um, I've never really got into pest analysis myself. No. But, but a lot of this is just common sense. Um, sure. Uh, and you're right, what has to come out are the, you know, what are the strengths of the charity, what are the weaknesses, what are the opportunities and what are the threats. But yeah. um, it doesn't have to be done according to a kind of two-by-two two matrix. In a rigid way, no, of course. Whatever works. And I suppose when we're talking about small charities, it could just be one person that we're talking about. Maybe that chief exec just setting up the charity and realising they're going to have to fundraise to get another person in post to run with the SWAN analysis. I, I think what you have to remember is that the... The vast majority of charities who are active in this country have no paid staff. Yeah. 
they, they simply run on the basis of the volunteers mm. who, who both do the, the work and raise yeah. the money to do the work and they have yeah. no staff at all and that's the vast majority of charities mm. so you're actually getting into the minority that even have one paid member Absolutely. staff Absolutely. so by the time you get to the the charities that are able to appoint a fundraiser yeah. you're actually getting into a quite small niche proportion yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. so if you are in that uh, position where you're a charity that has aspirations to grow then my argument with my clients is you you have to put your effort into finding a fundraiser mm. and a lot of them say oh but but people aren't going to want to give money to fund a fundraiser and i said but unless you find a fundraiser you're not going to be able to raise the money for your aspirations Absolutely. you're just going to go round and round in small circles and, and i'd say to them you know, have a three to five year plan mm. plan that you grow your services in like three to five years yeah but in the first year, raise all your money, um, not to grow your services, but to actually employ the fundraiser. Right. Then when you've got a fundraising place, they can create a fundraising plan and right, um, okay. start to fundraise. Yeah, we've talked about something along the, uh, sort of the investment in fundraising. We, we had a conversation with, I don't know if you know her, Kathy Roddy. We were talking about investment in fundraising and how kind of small charities the proportion of their investment in their in generating funds or fundraising, whatever they want to call it, will be probably a lot higher than a larger charity that has an existing fundraising mechanism and how it's not fair for the general public to judge charities based on how much they're investing in fundraising for that reason. You know, that if you want a small charity to really build into something really worthwhile and doing really great work, it will probably have to invest a much higher proportion of its funds into generating funds. But you, and you, sorry, yeah, yes, um, and you've used the word invest twice, which I think is great, but, uh, but I'm not sure a lot of charities see the point of a fundraiser as investment. Yeah. Um, yeah. I do, but I've got a client who's, who I'm persuaded to have an event, um, and they're insisting that half the money has to go to new services and only half to the fundraiser. Right, okay. And I say, you have to focus on the fundraiser. Yeah, and they yeah. say, we won't give to a fundraiser. But I say, but if you've got a five-year plan that says, here is our growth aspiration in five years, but we need a fundraiser first, yeah. then you'll get it. Then you talk about the returns. So what would you rather have at the end of your first year? A fundraiser who'd raised five times their costs, um, but only by squeezing people's wallets um, and with no basic support? Yeah. Or would you have a fundraiser who just covered their costs but had built a huge pool of engaged prospects um, that could be tapped Absolutely. over the following year? Yeah. So I don't, as you implied, a charity shouldn't be judged simply on the basis of you know, it, its return on investment. No, um, no. It, th there should be a much longer term horizon about fundraising and its results. So I think, I think coming back to your point, you know, where you start, start with the people who are likely to support, identify, as we've said, the role of trustees, identify then the ways to reach the people who are likely to support, mm -hmm. and only then think about the techniques to reach them. Yeah. Now, it might well be, as you implied right at the beginning, that your trustees actually know people in trusts, in which case it may well be that the fundraiser does start with trust and foundation. Sure. But it may well be that, for example, for a small local charity, 
um, that they might be best off having an event, um, mm -hmm. getting the networks of their trustees, getting the mayor on board, local businesses, yeah, yeah. local wealth, um, get people engaged. One of the trustees might be able to find a nice venue, yeah. come along to the engagement event and then follow up the people who come and mm. they may well be prospects for major donors. Now for a number of my clients, that, that's why I've recommended they start, mm. to actually start building up um, a prospect list, an engagement list, people who engage with the cause. Yeah. And then you can use the trustees and the CEO and the services person to, um, to, to engage them further. So mm. Hospice, invite them to the hospice, etc, etc. So it's about engaging people, it's not about fundraising technique. Is it feasible that a, a small charity can have ambitions to grow and support the area of needs, whatever their, their aim is, um, solely with volunteer fundraisers. Do you think that's, well, a, that's a possibility? Well, but, but as I said a moment ago, the vast majority of charities have no paid fundraisers. Yeah. So the vast majority of charities who are active um, do do it just on the basis of volunteers. So Fantastic. yes, of course it's, yeah. it's possible. And, and I think charities that, that have the luxury of being able to appoint a paid fundraiser should look at the good charities that have no paid fundraisers, mm. well, how, how do they operate when they're volunteers? Yeah. And how can we, even with a paid fundraiser, make sure we harness the power of volunteers sure. to, 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 to get us going? So it's really adding value to what the, uh, the, the other charities are providing without the uh, paid fundraiser. I suppose that's the aim, isn't it? For me? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Okay, so what, what you're saying is that fun, what, what I will be saying, but I think you're saying as well, <laughs> is, is that the whole essence of charity is about connecting volunteers and cause. Absolutely. And if you appoint a paid fundraiser, uh, I've never heard you put it that way, they should be adding value to the work of the volunteers. It shouldn't yeah. be that you appoint the fundraiser, the volunteers then fall away, and the fundraiser fundraises in inverted commas, Absolutely. which you know I hate. Because it was interesting, I had a, a few years ago, we had a, a conversation at a place I was working at, and they were saying, how many volunteers do we have? And uh, it occurred, only really then occurred to me, and I've been working in, as a fundraiser myself for many years, it only really occurred to me that we have volunteers, our volunteers are the fundraisers, aren't they? You know, our volunteers aren't just the people that are coming in and, and volunteering time in the office. They're the people out there banging the drum, raising the funds, doing the events and, and you know, as participants. So then it occurred to me, all of our fundraisers are volunteers. It was just a, a small little yeah, uh, yeah, idea, yeah, but it yeah. suddenly made me think, of course, they are, in the, you know, they should be treated in the same way. Um, and equally, our, our volunteers coming into the office may themselves want to uh, raise funds for us too, you know, and start... start and that, and that, that creates a very important point, which is that, and I don't know, I, I don't know enough about smaller charities to do that. To, to, to say this, but you must not make a distinction between, on the one hand, there are the services and the sure. volunteers who provide the services, and then quite separately, there's like the fundraising arm. Um, fundraising should be the responsibility of everyone in the organisation. Absolutely. Because if you believe in the organisation, you believe in its aims and what it's trying to do, yeah. then you must believe that it needs to raise the money and you must want to help do that. So, um, you know, uh, volunteers who drive the van round. Uh, picking up children, whatever, can be the same volunteers that, that are you know, helping on a volunteer committee to organise a jumble sale. Absolutely. I mean, for, I'm a, as I said, I'm a fundraiser born and bred, really, and, uh, and when I occasionally give pro bono talks to smaller groups about fundraising, and I talk about the fact that I've been a fundraiser since I was 13, when I did my first paper round, and I gave out Christmas cards 
with my with the newspaper at Christmas. My first direct mail campaign, although it was for me at that time because I was saying you know, Merry Christmas, and I subsequently got the tips from that. But um, I suppose one thing that occurs to me is, I, and I, you know, I'm, I'm, at my heart, I'm about fundraising, and, and a lot of the smaller organisations I've worked for, fundraising has been part of everything. It hasn't been a silo culture where fun, the fundraising team sits here and everyone else sits elsewhere. It's been fundraising has been at the heart of everything, and some of the best personally, some of the best leads that we've had that have generated funds subsequently have been from other members of the team who aren't anything to do with fundraising in their job title. Absolutely. So uh, I suppose that sense of spreading the, the network as far and wide as you can and then um, and raising funds for me is, is yeah, a real Yeah, um, I, I can actually trump you in terms of starting fundraising. Go on. I started fundraising when I was 10 um, oh, okay. and I appointed um, a bit precocious. I appointed two sub-editors and edited a, a school newspaper. Oh, really? Oh, which wow. we sold in the playground for a penny a copy. Yeah. And I continued fundraising all the way through my secondary school education. Oh, wow. So the first, in a sense, ten years of my fundraising career were, yeah. were as a volunteer. So I have the nature of um, volunteer fundraising actually yeah. you know, threw me like a, a, a stick of rock. Wow. Uh, and I love your idea that the job of professional paid fundraisers is to add value to the work of volunteers, not to use techniques to go out and persuade people to give. I've spent a lot of time um, as an event manager, for example, and that seems more clear to me that I'm really facilitating giving because it's, you know, John and Sue out banging the drum, talking about the cause, why they're raising funds for it, and I'm just giving them the t-shirts or the vests or, you know, having a phone chat with them about ways they can maybe talk to somebody or other about the cause. But that's it. You know, my role is kind of uh, just being there in those, in those situations. And they're the fundraiser and I'm the um, back office support, you know. So, yeah. It, it's, it's interesting. I was having lunch today with someone and I'm helping a very small charity organise an event with a, a very prestigious host at a very prestigious venue. They're a tiny yeah. charity. And she said to me, how much are you selling tickets for? And I'm saying, we're not, we're not, we're not selling tickets, we're simply inviting people mm-hmm. to come. It's an engagement event. Sure. Um, and the whole purpose is to, to bring people in, to inspire them with the work, to hopefully encourage them to want maybe to meet the chief executives or some of the workers, and gradually engage them mm. to be donors. And she mm. said, oh, no, you're absolutely mad. You, you, you should be selling tickets at X pounds a, a shot. And I, I, I just, you know, I had to shrug my shoulders and say, well, yeah. it's, it's a different way of looking at fundraising. Yeah, um, yeah. People, people don't pay to get into this venue. They, um, they're invited in, yeah. and then we, we cultivate them and nurture them. And in events like that, is it a case of, and I suppose a small charity listening, if they were to hold an event like that, and thinking about you know not not getting not asking immediately for a donation, but building a kind of a stewardship program, even in a small way. If it's a small organisation, is it? Do they then talk to those people about fundraising at the beginning? Or are they going to be holding back, talking about the, the need for the money until later on in the relationship? What's the? I don't know. If, do you want to go into this I, I, now, I, I, or is I, it for another yeah, time? Yeah, I will. I've got the invitation in my uh, or the draft invitation in my my wallet here. And it, it says, you know, so-and-so, so-and-so, in request the president of the company of so-and-so at a drinks reception to hear about the work of yeah. X charity. Now, I reckon, and that's going to go out to a lot of the great and good and philanthropists, etc. Sure. Nobody is going to read that invitation and think, oh, 
I'm being invited for a free drink at sure, Mossip. Sure, they're yeah. going to they're going to know. Read between the lines. Um, yeah, the, the, yeah. the whole purpose is to get money out of them ultimately. Sure. And in the speeches on the night, they'll be mainly inspirational about the the cause. Yes. But the last speaker will say, you know, you know, you're not here for a free drink with so and so. You're here because you want your money. Yeah. Little chitter goes round the room. Yeah. But you know, no, no checks on the night. Nothing. The whole point is, as you say, to cultivate them, to steward them to engage them further and further. Mm. And all of my experience is that if you do that, and this is also true for a very small charity, if you start to engage the people that you've talked about who have a propensity to give, mm. and don't just ask them for cash, but engage them and nurture them, cultivate them, steward them, sure. you will in the longer term get much more money out of them because mm. they're actually engage with the cause, they become a stakeholder of the cause, sure. rather than just giving to make the um, fundraiser go away. I wouldn't expect to get somebody, um, I don't know, buying a loyalty card to the cinema if they'd never been to the cinema before. I'll get them to the cinema first, watch a good movie, and then say, how about getting a loyalty card? But the, it's but a bad that, example, but I, you know no, what I mean? No, no, yeah, I, I do know what you mean, but it, it's not the way a lot of charities think. They, they, they think in terms of short-term cash, you know, even big charities. Uh, is that because of, of desperation, do you think, or just, just short-term thinking? I think it's just short-term short thinking. Short-term targets. Um, uh, I, I, I all believe in long-term thinking, and, mm. I, and I think if a charity thinks longer-term, uh, it's not about money now, it's about building relationships with people for more money later. Yeah. Uh, that way you will get a better return. That, that's, that's been my experience yeah. with a very large charity, right. but it's also been my experience when working with um, the small charities. Mm. So, coming right the way back to your point at the beginning, you know, it, it's, it's about people, identifying the people yeah. who have the propensity to support finding then or thinking about the right way mm. to engage them given the nature of your cause so that would in a sense in a nutshell be my advice to a small charity think longer term don't look for short-term cash invest to use your word in um, getting supporters who will engage with you longer term Giles Pegram CBE thank you for <laughs> contributing again to Charity Chat my pleasure um, hope to see you again So there you go, dear listener. A big thank you to Giles Pegram, CBE, for his valuable time and equally valuable insights and points of view. With the constant fundraising challenge that many of our organisations are facing, there is no better time to think about how charities can empower their volunteers, including trustees, to develop and grow their vital work. I hope you found this episode as fascinating, as useful as I did. Perhaps you agree with the points of views. Perhaps you don't. Either way, we'd love to hear from you. Equally, if you, like our listener Claire, have questions or points of view the charity chat might cover, please do get in touch because we did it with Claire's suggestion. We could do it with yours and it could help all of us to better understand the world of fundraising and other aspects of the charity sector. So you can find all of our contact information on our website. Please do get in touch with us. Website address is charitychat.org.uk or you can email us info at charitychat.org.uk. It's just left for me to thank you for listening and to thank our sponsors, Giant Squid Audio Lab, sponsoring our podcast kit, Magda Aksumit for splendid website design. Please do check it out, charitychat.org.uk. 
RIR Photography for the lovely pro bono images on our website, and Forest of Fools who have been playing throughout the show and are playing us out right now. That's it for this episode. Thanks again for listening. Speak to you soon. Cheerio.